Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. Hello, hello. Hey, Mike, how's it going in San Francisco? Uh, it's nice and quiet, just how I like it. We're also joined this week by Wired editor-at-large, Stephen Levy, who is dialing in from New York City. Stephen, thank you for being on the show this week. Thanks. It's uh, great to be back on the podcast. The last time we had you on the show, we were talking about the book you had just published about Facebook, which wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a really long time ago. Yeah, yeah. That was um, on the beginning of my book tour. Actually, it was turned out to be towards the end of my book tour. All right. Well, for the past several weeks in this podcast, we've been focused almost entirely on the coronavirus, the way it's impacting our lives and our communication with one another, our country's lack of testing, how or if our society might ever go back to quote unquote normal, and so much more. This episode is also about the effects of COVID-19, but it's a uniquely personal episode. Earlier this week, Stephen here had a conversation with Stuart Brand and Ryan Phelan, Stuart's wife. Many of you who follow Wired might be familiar with who Stuart is. He's the founder of the counterculture magazine Whole Earth Catalog, and he's someone who was very prominent early on in the hacking community back in the 80s, which is when Stephen first became acquainted with him. Now, back in March, Stuart Brand made a statement on Twitter that surprised some people. He had decided and had communicated to Ryan and the rest of his family that he wanted to refuse invasive procedures, such as being put on a ventilator, should it come to that. And this was at a time that was I mean, not that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago, when there was a lot of information pouring out about how some COVID patients required ventilation and that there weren't enough ventilators to go around. So this week on the podcast, we hear directly from Stuart as to how he arrived at this decision. And Stephen conducts the interview. Stephen, thanks for doing that. Um, what made you want to talk with Stuart about this topic? Well, I was really struck and disturbed that Stuart, who I've known for many years and see him as kind of a mentor, uh, certainly an inspiration, was talking about his death, essentially, and whether he should refuse the ventilator, uh, which at that point was being described almost as a miracle machine that would help people uh, when they were, got really sick with COVID. Um, Stewart also was very much ahead of the curve on everything. Right around that time, he was also saying that soon people are all going to be wearing masks. And that was a time when folks were saying that citizens shouldn't be wearing masks. And even in his discussion about the ventilator at that time, while everything was so positive about ventilators, within a few days after his post, uh, I saw articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, AP, sort of questioning how valuable these ventilators were. And I think Stewart saw that data in real time that helped him make his decision. You know, um, one of the things in his original tweet was that uh, he was questioning what the post-ventilator experience would be like when you come off the thing. Is it going to be a, uh, are you going to be uh, happy that you went on it? Is it going to uh, harm your life going forward? Uh, I thought that it was really interesting that he was asking those questions. Well, he, both he and Ryan, as you'll hear in the interview, 
uh, had previously done living wills and do not resuscitate. But COVID presents unique challenges because you're not going to have time normally to make these kind of careful decisions. When you go to the emergency room, you can't breathe. They're going to intubate you if, if they think it's going to save your life. Uh, no matter what you have in your living will, unless you've got everything all ready and everything all lined up to refuse it, if that's the decision you make. And one big reason to make that decision is, especially if you're an older person, a steward is 81, uh, the, the odds of living the rest of your life and maybe needing care uh, is an alternative that he doesn't want to risk. Now, we should also note, and this is something that's discussed in the interview, that these are decisions that Stuart and Ryan have arrived at themselves. They're not advocating for other people to make the same decision or to refuse ventilation should it come to that or any other kinds of end of life support. They're simply saying they had this conversation with their family. It's probably a good reminder for people to have these kinds of conversations with family or those closest to you right now, as difficult as it is, because a global pandemic really forces you to think about these end-of-life scenarios. And this is how they arrived at their decision. So without any further wind-up, let's hear directly from Stuart and Ryan. I want to thank uh, Stuart Brand and Ryan Fallon for coming on our podcast today. Um, And we're going to talk about a story I wrote in Wired this week um, that sprang from my viewing a tweet that Stuart posted on March 20th. Uh, Stuart, tell me what you tweeted then and why you tweeted it. Um. I was getting a sense that a whole lot of people were getting the disease already then, that part of March, and going off to a hospital and then finding themselves quickly moved from the emergency room into ICU and then often uh, intubated on ventilators without uh, any kind of just a damn minute along the way. I was hearing some of this from Ryan, who's very familiar with emergency room procedures. And I just thought, you know, wait a minute. Uh, When do we get a chance to sort of say I might have some options I'd like to know about before I get zoomed into uh, something I might regret and then be totally helpless to uh, change? And once you're intubated, uh, you belong to the hospital, no longer to yourself. And Ryan, did, were you looking over his shoulder? Did you know this was happening? Or did this spring from discussions the two of you were having? Um, absolutely, from discussions we were both having, Stephen, because, you know, our noses were buried in, in the news every, you know, morning, noon, and lunch, it felt like, uh, trying to make sense of what was going on with this rapid escalation of, of this healthcare crisis. What happened after you tweeted, Stuart? Um, I suspected there would be some response, some pushback, but mainly I was just looking for information. Um, I'm astonished at, depending on who you follow on Twitter, what an extraordinary resource it can be for very rapid, sometimes very sophisticated information, and that's what I was looking for. I think the very first time you tweeted about it, Stuart, um, it was a bit of a surprise that you were you know, talking about end of life online like that. And I remember one of the first uh, comments was, uh, hold on, old man, you know, (laughs) don't, don't start calling the herd. 
And I, I thought it was such a great response. It was, it was actually sort of respectful in this funny way. Uh, but what we realized is that it was almost a bit verboten to talk about not utilizing state-of-the-art technology and coming from us as technophiles to say, wait just a minute, um, I think it was particularly surprising. Well, it was startling to me because uh, I should say that we're friends. And you know, I've known uh, both of you for quite a while. Um, and uh, the thought of losing you, you know, is scary. And I'm sure to both of you, the thought of losing yourselves is scary. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you mentioned, Ryan, that that moment, uh, this is March 20th, which seems like an eternity away. We we're yeah. talking about it over a month later now. At that moment, there was this feeling about ventilators that, that the association we had with them was, oh my God, we're not having enough. And it was all about where do we get them? What's going to happen? Is there going to be some sort of triage when you show up at the hospital where they're going to decide this person is not ventilator worthy? Right. right? Do, we, and, do we step aside and say, oh, let that 18-year-old have it instead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So the idea of saying, well, do I want a ventilator yeah. was cross, went counter to the conventional mm -hmm. wisdom of that time. Well, it was interesting because it felt like everyone was forgetting the fact that a lot of people were not going to be happy on a ventilator. It was going to be an extraordinarily painful and for some people, you know, psychologically damaging. I mean, people have had very adverse reactions to going through intubation, not to mention a long-term impact of other clinical issues. And it felt like we were all rooting for more and more ventilators when no one was really questioning whether or not they were right for everyone or whether everyone really wanted them. Right. And I should say, going into this, both of you, uh, because, Ryan, you have a background in healthcare. You actually worked at uh, the Zen Hospice in San Francisco, correct? Yes, and, I did during the early AIDS crisis. And so you had given thought to end, end of life, and you have orders of do not resuscitate under certain circumstances, but this ventilator thing, from what I understand, was a new twist, particularly with this disease rampant. Uh, very much so. The, the current medical directive that uh, hopefully more and more people are, are uh, ensuring that they have in their medical record um, really, uh, you know, draws the line at do not resuscitate. That's sort of the, you know, the take control uh, kind of moment. But that doesn't apply when you're in that ICU and they're talking about intubation and ventilation. Why is so, that, is, wait a minute, is a ventilator not a resuscitator? Uh, or is no. resuscitation just your heart to stop or something? What's That's the, deal? the whole idea is that, mm -hmm. you know, prior to COVID, that was our big concern is that people would have a massive heart attack and maybe even result in brain damage but that they would continue to put them on life support and keep them going through, um, you know, resuscitation. But, you know, now with COVID, that's, that's not the big issue. It's, it's respiratory failure. Right. So what's going on with COVID, as I understand it, is um, your heart's still going okay. So they're not doing resuscitation, but your lungs are either filling up with crap and you're having this uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome and they immediately intubate you 
or your oxygen level in your blood is way the hell down, which I guess is a COVID specialty. And they figured the only, they originally figured the only way to get oxygen to you was to intubate you at that point. Though I understand now with some practice and realization of the kind of poor results coming with, uh, with, with ventilators is first they will try proning you, turning you over on your belly and giving you oxygen through a mask or through a cannula and see if they can uh, fix your oxygen level that way. That's my understanding. Yeah, and Stephen, we should both mention we are, uh, we are not clinical, medically, clinically savvy. We're, uh, you know, aware of what's going on and paying close attention. Um, but mostly what we're concerned about is this question of will we as potential patients and will others like us have the agency to make a decision about end-of-life issues in the time of COVID. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I want to just have the context of this. Um, you're looking at this for your own purposes, what, what's right for you. Exactly. You're not telling other people not to do this. You know, the, the, the overall um, reason you're sharing it is to make people aware that they should think for themselves about this issue, correct? Yeah, well, look, Stephen, we did, this is a reunion of the Hackers Conference we're having right here. Because <laughs> we got to know you back in 84 when you did the Hackers book. And then Ryan organized the Hackers Conference, and you and I, and she were all at it. And the whole hacker approach is that you uh, mess with the technology, you take it seriously, you learn it, you embrace it, and then you fuck with it. And uh, in a way, this is a, a sort of a hacker response to ventilators of deciding how you want to relate to this particular technology. It's not a given, and you want, like Ryan said, agency over how it's fucking used. Excuse my language. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you for that. <laughs> We're going to pause for a moment and take a quick break here. We'll be right back. So the data you were getting, and you specifically said, give me data, right? Give me in, in information here. Uh, did you f find it discouraging what you learned? Uh, it was tremendously encouraging how people took the question seriously and, and you know, then had their antennae out to see what was going by, and then they would uh, pass it on. And... Um, you know, sometimes it was what somebody would say, but mostly it's the links. I think Twitter really, is strength is in the ability to link to things. And I would go and look at some of the stuff that uh, people offered as links, and it was all pretty supportive of um, doing a just a damn minute about ventilators in particular. So say it another way, Stuart, it was um, alarming when we read the statistics that it was more than half the people do not survive, right? And then there were, you know, up numbers upward from 60% up to 88% of people who did not do well after ventilation. And that was really alarming. Yeah. Um, it was supportive of, the, uh, of us taking a stance on this, but it was a, a terrible thing to be reading about. So given those statistics, and the deal is now you're talking about dying. Uh, one way or another, you know, if it's eight out of ten die on the ventilator, would you rather die on a ventilator alone, surrounded by people that look like they're on Mars, 
uh, if there are any people at all, and um, paralyzed and are in a coma, uh, and having been there, using up, among other things, you know, five or six extra personnel to keep you uh, all of your semi-functional uh, system is semi-functional, and or uh, is there another option? And this is where Ryan's knowledge really comes in. You know, is there a, a comfort center? Is there a hospice center? Is there, uh, can I have some opiates now, please, and uh, just park me in a corner rather than go through um, being put in a coma and intubated? Really, like, the question is, how do you die with dignity, uh, pain-free, when you're in great respiratory distress? I mean, we don't really know the answer to that, Stephen. Well, I think... The thing that makes me uncomfortable, and I should mention, you know, that we're all of three of us are people of a certain age. Stuart is a little more certain, and in, in, <laughs> he's 81. Hey, uh, by the way, you didn't do the math right, Stephen. I'm 14 years younger than him. Oh, really? I, I gave you a break. <laughs> no, you made me. <laughs> oh, my well, God, you're fact-checking me on the air. Oh, my, I'm, I'm ruined. Uh, I, you're right. That's true. Um, um you are 67, Stuart is 81. Right. You know, I'm uh, 69, I think. Um, I can't ah. do my own math. What do you mean you think? <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. At a certain point, you really don't want to face it. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. But okay. anyway, so, 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 so I'm looking at this and thinking, wait a minute. From my point of view is I don't want to flip over the cards and say that that's it give me the morphine at, at a certain point. And I have to say, when I talked to some other people, some real doctors, they were saying they, that, yeah, what, what that is true about the, the outcomes of people on ventilators, you know, half or, and in some places in New York City, it's even, even more that it's like 80% don't get off the ventilator. But they were also saying well, there's sort of a middle ground that you can go for a couple days and maybe that'll fix you and it won't be so bad. But the longer you're on a ventilator, then the worse the outcomes are. Then your organs might start to fail. And then you're really looking at these uh, permanent disabilities and you might need uh, care for the rest of your life. But, you know, so I left those people thinking, hmm, you know, maybe in, in for a couple days, then then we'll see where it goes and do something more complicated. But both of you chose, isn't yeah. this right, to say, no, not a minute on and the I'll ventilator. Tell you, and I'll tell you why, Stephen, because the nice continuum that you just drew there, you're, you know, you start in and they, you do a day or two and, you know, maybe things will escalate, maybe they won't. The problem is when they escalate, you're not in control. And, and, and Dr. Halpern, who you uh, interviewed for your article, said the same thing, you know, that, uh, that, you know, yes, some people do fine. And, you know, but the point is, you lose that agency when things go really bad. And that's the part that's really scary. You don't get to decide, um, oh, well, you know, now I'm going to be on for two weeks and I'm never going to really come off. So, Ryan, can you imagine as my medical advocate, um, so they've taken me away from you in hospital. And even though I have, you know, this uh, directive stapled to my chest or something, they ignore it because uh, things are moving quickly and they just throw me in the, uh, on the ventilator and into the ICU down, in the, down the end of the corridor. 
And uh, then they finally get your phone, and they get in touch with you, and you say, how is he doing? And they say, well, we think he's going to be okay. He's on the incubator. What do you do at that point, and how do you make it uh, have any effect? I know this is a horrible scenario, Stuart, uh, because, you know, you're there against their will. Mm-hmm. And your will. And mm-hmm. anyway, it's a very tough scenario. And, and well, can you talk me off the ventilator once I'm on it? Can you, as my advocate, yeah. do that? You know, without being able to storm in there and raise bloody hell, I don't know how I will be able to do that, Stuart. So let me push back on this, Ryan. I spoke to Dr. Robert Wachter, who is uh, the head of medicine at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, uh, big hospital in in San Francisco. And he told me that he confirmed Stewart's suspicion that he just went in there without a directive and verbally said, I don't want a ventilator um, and you're gasping for air. They're going to overrule it thinking, you know, well, this person might not be thinking straight. They'll throw the, put you in, in, intubate you. But after a couple days, if it turns out you do have a medical directive um, that it's for real and your advocate is pushing back, they will respect those wishes. So the two-day scenario uh, seems plausible, which is why I, I went back and asked you again, Ryan, about that. Are you, are you sure? I'll give you a, another <laughs> shot at that uh, for that because, I mean, I, I you could you know, have many years ahead of you. Uh, There are cases where people spend a brief time on a ventilator, sometimes even a longer time, and and wind up okay, or maybe have something that they they can live with. You thought hard about that, and still not worth it for you, huh? You know, Stephen, one should never say never, but um, my feeling is that uh, it puts everyone in a very awkward situation to pull somebody off a ventilator that might want to or need to die at home. And that's a terrible uh, responsibility for others to take. And so I'm willing to take it for myself and to say, just don't go there with me. You know, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, if I got really sick, I would absolutely want to go to the hospital. I'd want to get morphine and whatever drugs gave me relief. I'd love to get treatments like the new drug of, uh, that just is being discussed. But, you know, if, if things are really, really critical, um, I, I'd like to get packed up and taken home. Mm-hmm. And so both of you made this decision. And then you found, as we mentioned earlier, there's no form that you just pull down that uh, describes to do this. You had to basically roll your own medical directive for this unique circumstance that, you know, for the the, decision that a lot of people face, right? Well, that's the hacker response, right? Write your own code. (laughs) That's right. Uh, It was sort of a a hacker job here. Um, And thanks to Katie Butler's uh, good book, which, uh, Stuart, you know the name of. It's The Art of Dying Well. Yeah. Um, she had a good guidelines in there on how to do a medical directive. Um, it, luckily, uh, it was easy to pull down and uh, edit away. And I had the good fortune of conversing both with Katie and my own, uh, our own personal physician. Uh, we shared, you know, versions of things like that. And Frank Austin Seski, from uh, formerly from Zen Hospice, you know, he was awesome. 
So, you know, we all kind of converged on what kind of language, and uh, I ran off and got it notarized just in case somebody was going to give us, uh, you know, <laughs> any pushback. Yeah, I should say when Stewart published uh, his medical directive on Twitter, he got an immediate reply from uh, someone else, a follower, asking if that person could use it as well. And, of course, Stewart in True Hacker Spirit said, go right ahead. <laughs> right, exactly. Do with it what you want. So, you know, our hope is that people just make thoughtful decisions. And, it, you know, number one, everybody should have a medical directive. It's crazy not to. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a gift to the people who love you. Yeah. And I, I finished the story with a tale, uh, an uplifting tale of someone who was on the ventilator for 17 days. Oddly, the day he went on a ventilator was the day that Stuart posted his first tweet, March 20th. Um, his father, who was a doctor, told him, don't let him put you on a ventilator. But he was a 44-year-old man with a two-year-old son. Um, yeah. And he got, he's off the ventilator now. Um, it affected his vocal cords. He's not quite sure whether he's going to uh, sing in the opera uh, again, but he's really happy that he was on the ventilator. Do you, do you imagine either of you that new data will come in that might make you change that directive? Or are you confident that that's just going to be it? Well, I hope we will continue to be open-minded um, as we have always tried to be in life. Um, Stuart, I, you know, I can't speak for you. What do you think? Um, the technology may get enough better that it's not as uh, ferocious a kind of one-way trip as it largely is now. And, uh, you know, just like they discovered proning is a good thing to do, uh, maybe they'll find out a way to do uh, intubation for COVID uh, that is not as drastic a an irre largely irreversible thing. And, of course, we would uh, adjust the nuance to that. But I think it's the case that you sort of want your medical directive to be adaptive to what's going on in medicine at the time anyway. And in a way, that's what this whole thing is. It's, it's, it's a directive for now. Um, next year might be something different. And how, how tough was it to go through this process? I think a reason why a lot of people don't do this is because it's so difficult to just imagine yourself not there anymore. You know, and uh, even picturing the circumstances is super scary for a lot of people. I think it, it was scary. Um, you know, talking... Uh, with someone you love about losing them and losing yourself, um, you know, it's a tough conversation. But I think for both of us, it's empowering. Yeah. When you think about taking, you know, some agency over your life, it's it's very empowering. Yeah, there's, there's otherwise, a, you know, there's enough feeling of helplessness about death anyway. Uh, <laughs> to be able to dial that down even a little bit uh, in terms of being able to take um, some anticipatory control over some aspects of it, like uh, reduce the suffering and up the control. All of that seems like an improvement. And actually the best part, the best part of it all was getting it done and, and to quit talking about should we do this, how do we do this, and just, yeah. you know, it was, you know, ticked off the to-do list. <laughs> well, I hope those directives will never have to be used and uh, you'll both be around for a very long time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I really want to thank you both so for sharing your process so candidly with us. Our pleasure. May it uh, proliferate out there. Thank you, Stephen. Mm -hmm.
All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us and for that great conversation. Well, thanks, Lauren and Michael. It's always great to be on this podcast. And you can also read about Stephen's conversation with Stuart Brand and Ryan Phelan on Wire.com. Thanks also to Stuart and Ryan, of course, for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.